Hey everybody, we'd like to welcome you to the Ewok Podcast. We hope your day's going good. This is the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church located in Wilton, Maine. And today we're going to hear a message from Robbie Locke, our senior pastor. We hope that it's a blessing to your life and that God uses it to help you walk closer with him. And our prayer is that you would grow closer to him in truth and in love. Well, without further ado, here's Pastor Robbie. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. This morning we're going to go to several different passages that have to do with the Christmas story. But I want us to begin in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Let's just bow for prayer as we begin this morning. Our God and Father, we are approaching your precious and holy word now. We do so with profound seriousness. We do so, Father, with complete humility and submission, understanding that this is your inspired word and therefore it is our responsibility not only to hear it, but to bring it into our practice. And so Lord, we want the Holy Spirit to teach us, we want the Holy Spirit to apply, and then Lord, we understand how utterly dependent upon the Spirit we are so that we might carry it out into our practice. And in this morning, Lord, we're going to be talking about different questions that are connected to the Christmas story. Some of the whys. Why this? Why that? Why Joseph? Why Mary? Why the swaddling clothes? And we're going to talk about several different things. And Lord, I just want to pray that as we make application of these things to our lives, that we will be ready to live them out in our practice. Thank you for what you will do now, Lord. In Jesus' precious and holy name we do pray. Amen. I've entitled this message Christmas Questions because there are some things about Christmas that God states and maybe you have asked from time to time, why were these things the way they were? Why did this story live itself out with the specific individuals involved and with some of the details that are connected to the birth of Christ? So we want to talk about that together today. But beginning in Galatians 4.4, I want you to understand how fundamental this verse is to the Christmas season. In Galatians 4.4 it says, but when the fullness of time was come. That means that at the precise moment in history that God had planned from before the foundations of the world, at that precise moment in time, God sent forth his Son. So one of the questions we ask is, why did he come when he came? We only know that this was the perfect plan and intention of God, and he had established this very moment in history for Jesus to come. So, he came in the fullness of time, when the stage was set, when everything was ready, then and only then, God sent forth his son. Now, why is this important? 
Number one, because God sent him. So we understand that this was the plan of the Father. He sent the Son, which means the Son submitted to the plan of the Father, and he came to be the Savior. But secondly, it says he sent forth his what? His Son. Now this is vital, because for the Jews to say that he was the Son of God, they understood that meant that he was God, that he was equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And so he was the son of God. He was God of very gods. Then it said he was made of a woman. It doesn't mention the woman's name. We know the woman's name was Mary. But why did he need to be made of a woman? So that he could become a man. So that he could be a human being with a human nature, yet without sin, because he was also God. He had a physical body to be able to be sacrificed for you and for me on the cross. And then that physical body would rise again from the dead to prove that not only God would save our souls, he will save our bodies and all of that is a part of salvation. And then lastly, he says, he was made under the law. Why is this important? It is important because Jesus was born under the law, which means he was a Jew. This was very important to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. But there's another reason. Jesus came not only to teach the law, he came to perfectly practice the law. He came to show that as God and man, that wonderful combination of those two natures in one new nature, which only he has possessed, no one else has ever had this nature of God and man together, he fulfilled the law. You want to know why? Because you and I, not only wants to save us from our sins, he knows that you and I can never fulfill the law. We can't do it. It's impossible. We're sinners. And so Jesus fulfilled the law himself by then saving us. The Bible says that through him, we can now fulfill the righteousness of the law. In other words, I don't have to sin anymore. I can actually live in a way that pleases God. Isn't that good news? So he was born under the law, not just as a Jew, but to fulfill the law so that ultimately, as we are saved, we too can fulfill the law and be pleasing in the sight of God. So when the time was right, when the stage was set, when everything was ready, Jesus Christ was born. Jesus' birth was God's plan carried out on God's timetable and was by God's design. In other words, the coming of Jesus was completely in accordance with the plan of God. God was totally in charge. Aren't you glad he's sovereignly in control of all things? Amen. Nothing happened by accident or by chance. And that is why we need to pay close attention to the details of the message of Christmas. God had a purpose in all that he did in planning the birth of Jesus. And so this morning we want to focus on several specific details about Christ's birth. Now, the truth is, as I began investigating this, I started making a list. <laughs> there was so much. I said, if I preach on all that, we'll be here till Sunday night. And while I know you all want to stay here until 5 p.m. tonight, I decided I'd let you out by about one. So that's, that's not, not, not quite that bad. Not quite that bad. Now, 
What is the first thing? If you have your bulletins, you can follow along with me. Question number one, why Gabriel? Why did God send the angel Gabriel to Mary to announce that she was going to give birth to the Messiah? In the Bible, there are only three angels that have been given names that we know of. I'm assuming they all have names, but we only know three. One of the angels we know is Lucifer. And Lucifer was the angel that God had placed in charge of all of the other angelic host in heaven. But he rebelled against God. This was before the creation of the world. He rebelled in heaven against God. And a third of the angels rebelled with him against God. And they were cast out of heaven and became Satan and the demons. So it only makes sense that God is not going to send Satan to Mary to announce the birth of his son. So it's not that one. Why the second angel that is mentioned in the Bible is the archangel Michael. Now what was Michael's purpose? The archangel was God's messenger specifically to the Jewish people. And he was involved in part in helping to protect the people of God as well. And so his ministry is connected directly with the Jews. Now one might say, well, it would make sense, then it would be Michael, because Michael came to a Jewish virgin named Mary, and Joseph was a Jewish person, so it makes sense that it might have been Michael, but it wasn't. It was Gabriel, and why? I want to suggest to you that there is a reason, or two reasons. Number one, Jesus was born not just for the Jews, but Jesus was born for the whole world. Amen? The plan of God was ultimately to offer salvation to all of humanity, not just his national people, Israel. So if Michael is basically connected always with the nation of Israel, one might think then that the Gentiles are left out. But what about Gabriel? This is the second thing. I want you to quickly with me turn to Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9. And we see in Daniel chapter 9 the appearance of Gabriel to Daniel with a message from God. And I want you to see with me what that message was and why it's so important. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 21. Let's start there. Verse 21, it says, yes, and this is Daniel speaking. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. Now, just stop there for a moment. It says the man Gabriel. Why does he call him a man and not an angel? Well, number one, you need to understand that when angels appeared to men, what form did they appear in? They appeared like men, literal men, with bodies, physical, material bodies. So when he looks at Gabriel, he says, well, he's a man. However, he then describes, and I don't think any of us can do this, it says, being caused to fly swiftly, reaching me about the time of the evening offering. How many of you can fly? We can't fly, can we? So when he's talking about the man Gabriel, this man had the capacity to fly, and we do know that the angels have the ability to fly. And so Gabriel here is an angel, even though he's not called that. He moved swiftly, he flew through the air, and he comes to Daniel with a message. And what's important here, and we're not going into a great detail about this passage this morning, the message 
of Gabriel was very important for Daniel because this message has to do with the first coming of Jesus. The first coming of the Messiah. Look down in verse 25. This passage in its context is talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. I explained in Sunday school this morning that the first 69 weeks of Daniel are the Old Testament period. The 70th week of Daniel is yet in the future. It begins with the moment after the rapture, the beginning of the tribulation period, and there is one week, or in other words, seven days of seven years. as a total of seven years. Each of the weeks of Daniel are weeks of seven years. The 70th week of Daniel is the tribulation period in the future. Thank God we're not going to be here. Amen. He's coming to take the church out. And then there's that one week of years, those seven years, when God again begins to deal with the nation of Israel. That's when the Antichrist appears and all of that goes on. At the end of that 70th week is when Jesus comes to destroy his enemies and set up his kingdom. So in this passage in Daniel, he's describing the 70 weeks. Now notice what he says in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command. Now what was that command? That was the command for the Jews to go back from captivity to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. He said from the time the command went forth to restore and build Jerusalem until who? Until Messiah, the prince. He's saying, so until he comes, I want to describe to you. Notice he said, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a total of 69 weeks, and that culminates at the end of the Old Testament. So he says, from the end of the Old Testament until when Messiah the Prince comes, there will be 69 weeks, and then it will be followed by a 70th week. Now what I want you to notice here is simply this truth, and I'm not going into all the details of the 70 weeks and blah, blah. That's another study. Okay, But what I want you to see is in the Old Testament, they anticipated at the end of the fulfillment of the 69 weeks that then the next major event on God's calendar would be the coming of the Messiah. Well, we know from the New Testament, the fulfillment in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 1, it gives his genealogy that he is from the line of David, from the line of Abraham. Abraham was the first Hebrew. David was the first king of Israel. And he's from the line of David. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So what I want you to see from this passage is that 600 years before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel came to Daniel and said, he's coming. He's coming. Didn't say when, but he said he's coming. And so the first coming of Jesus is mentioned 600 years before Jesus comes. Would it not make sense then if he already prophesied about the coming, the first coming of Jesus, that when it comes time to bring the message directly to the world that he's coming nine months from now, right? He's going to be conceived miraculously in the womb of Mary. It makes sense that he would say, and he is the Christ. He's that holy, holy being. He's that Messiah. He's Jesus. So it seems to me to make sense that Gabriel would be the one coming to tell Mary about the birth of the Messiah 
that would be her son through miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the reasons. God was consistent <clears throat> in his message, the message about the coming of Christ, but he was also consistent in his messenger. He gave the first message 600 years in the past, then he brought to Mary the message that the Messiah would be born. So that's the first question. Why Gabriel? It seems to be because he's connected with the prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah. And then he, at the moment of fulfillment of that prophecy, he is the one that comes and talks to Mary. Turn with me now to Luke's Gospel and chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 26 through 28. And the second question then is, why Mary? Why Mary? I mean, have you thought about that? Why specifically? Now, we know that by the Old Testament prophecies, she had to be a virgin, and Mary was a virgin. But I would suggest to you that there were many virgins in Israel at the time. So why did he pick Mary specifically when he could have picked an Elizabeth or a Joanne or whoever that virgin might be? Why Mary? And I think the Bible indicates in this passage and in a few verses later on in this exactly why he chose Mary. He chose her not just because she was a virgin and fulfilled that requirement, but he chose her because of the kind of woman that she was. And we want to see three truths about her in just a moment. So Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 28. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now jump with me ahead to verse 38. Verse 38. Then Mary said, and in, the, in between, Gabriel gives her all of the details. That the Holy Spirit will come upon her, that she's going to miraculously conceive. And then at the end of his explanation of the details, she says this, verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There are three things that I believe we see about Mary. Perhaps there are others, but at least three stand out to me. Number one, Mary was willing to be used by God in any way that he wanted to use her. Now, I think that's a very significant thing. Mary was willing to be used of God in any way that he wanted to use her. You know, there are Christians out there who are willing to serve God as long as he lets them do what they want to do. They have their ideas of how they can serve God, and it's kind of like, God, I'm bringing my blueprint to you. This is what I want to do. Please sign on the dotted line, and then I'll go about doing the things that I want to do for you. The problem is, in the Bible, God is the one who prepares the blueprint. He brings it to us, and he says, now you sign on my dotted line and do what I want you to do. Mary was willing, and we see it in verse 38, she said, let it be to me according to your word. She said, listen, I don't have ideas about this. In fact, I can imagine that she must have been filled with questions. 
But she said, God, if this is what you want me to do, I am willing to do it. And so I put it this way. Mary was a yielded vessel. She's in effect saying, just say it, Lord, and I will do it because I am your what? I'm your maidservant. I'm your maidservant. Now, what does that imply? She's saying, listen, you are God. I'm just a human being. (laughs) You're the Lord, the master. I'm the servant. I'm the slave. And so it's what you want, Lord. I'm willing to do your will. Brethren, we need to be like Mary. God's going to come to us and he's going to have a purpose and a plan for your life now. We're not going to have the amazing privilege that Mary had, right? Something like that. But God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. There are things he wants you to accomplish. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that before the foundations of the world, God established certain good works that you would accomplish during your life. I don't know about you. I want to find out what those good works are and I want to do them. I want to find out what God wants. And when I end my life, I want to be able to say, Lord, I saw your list and to the best of my ability, I did everything that you asked me to do. That should be the goal of the believer. The second thing I want you to see about Mary was that Mary believed God. She believed him. Now, ladies, even if an angel appeared to you today (laughs) and said to you, you're going to miraculously conceive without a human man being involved and you are going to have a baby, how many of you would say, well, of course I am? Or might you say, how in the world is that going to happen? Do you think you might ask that question? Well, that's what Mary asked. She says, how can this be? I've never been with a man. How am I going to conceive? And and the angel explained to her the Holy Spirit would be the means that God would use for her to conceive in her womb. It would be a miraculous thing and that he would be the son of God. And not the son of some human man who was a sinner, but rather the son of God who was perfect. And Jesus would be perfect because his father was perfect. But what we see here is that she believed God. Look at chapter 1 and verse 45. Blessed is she who, what? Who believed. For there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. She believed God. She believed his word and she acted upon it. So she believed his promises. What is the promise? You will conceive in your womb and you will carry the son of God and he will be the Messiah of Israel. And she accepted it by faith. Secondly, She believed in the power of God. (laughs) You know, it's one thing for God to say he's going to do or he can do a certain thing. It's another thing for us to believe what God says. I want to ask you something. Have you ever read a promise of God and your response was not just, I know God can do it, but rather your response was, I know God can do it. I just don't know if he'll do it for me. Have you ever had that attitude? And I want to suggest to you, Mary's coming and she's saying, I believe God can do it. But she's not saying, well, I don't know if he can do it for me. She's simply saying, Lord, you've said it. I believe it. I accept it by faith. And that is how we are to approach the word of God. What God says, we believe whether we have any sense or understanding of how he will accomplish it in us. But he will do it because he's promised to do so. The last thing I want you to see is that Mary, after finding out that this would happen, 
she gave praise to God. Notice verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul, what? Magnifies the Lord. My soul praises the Lord. She's in effect saying, this is an amazing thing that God is going to do, and I want to give God glory. I want to give God thanksgiving for what he's going to do. Notice, she said, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my what? My Savior. Folks, this is so important. There are those who would teach us that Mary was born without sin and that she was perfect all her life. But she describes God as her, what? As her Savior. You don't need God to be your Savior if you don't need saving. And she refers to God as her Savior because she knows that God will fulfill his plan in Jesus and this baby that she will give birth to will not only be her son by birth, human birth, but she will be a daughter of God because of this son. That God will save her and make her a part of his family through faith in the very baby that she would give birth to. Isn't that amazing? So she's rejoicing in God. And I put in my notes here, she's rejoicing even if God's will for her life meant being rejected by her own people. I want to suggest to you folks that when Mary was found to be with child and everybody knew she had not been with Joseph yet because Jewish uh, tradition in marriage was to be legally married for one year but not to consummate that relationship. In fact, in that first year, once the arrangements were made between the fathers that the man would marry the woman the man goes back to his home and he builds a home for his future family. He spends the next year preparing so that when he does get married, he brings her home to a home that's ready for them to live in. He's got everything all set up. He probably has his own flock. Everything's all worked out. And he makes a trip to where she is. They get married. They consummate the marriage after that year. And then they come back and begin their life together. And this is exactly what happened here. And so what we see here is that people would know that Joseph had not been responsible for this baby that was in her womb and without a doubt she was rejected, not only by some in her family, but by many in the community, perhaps everyone. She was willing to praise God even if it meant possible stoning because the Old Testament law said if you are found unfaithful, that was adultery during that year. And you could be put to death by stoning. And that was still in effect at that time. Now it seems like by this time, the option was given not to stone the woman to death, but to put her away privately with a, a letter of divorce. And that's the option that Joseph made. We'll talk about that in a moment. But my point here is this. She understood that if she believed God and she submitted to his plan, she might be stoned to death. And yet she says, I'm going to praise God for what he's going to do. I know he's in control. I believe God. So why Mary? I think he chose Mary because he knew the kind of woman that she was. That she was ready to do his will no matter what it was. And she was willing to be used by God for his glory in the birth of God's son. 
and she praised God for it, even despite the fact that doing the will of God could be very costly to her personally. Folks, if you and I do the will of God for our lives, it's going to be costly. Some people will not like how we live our lives. Some people will not like the stands that we take on issues. Why? Because it goes against the current of the world and the society in which we're living. But we must be prepared in the will of God to submit not only to his plan, but to believe that he is going to carry out his will and that he will even use us for his glory. And we can spend our lives praising him that we are instruments in his hands for his glory. So that's why he chose Mary, for the kind of woman that she was. Question number three, why Joseph? Why this particular man? Go with me to Matthew chapter 1, and I want to read verses 1 through 20. Matthew chapter 1, I'm sorry, verses 18 to 20, just three verses. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. We'll just read that far. Why did God choose Joseph? I want to suggest to you that this passage indicates in several ways that Joseph was a trustworthy man. He was a trustworthy man. Now, why is this important? Joseph was going to be responsible for taking care of Jesus from the time of his birth until basically he became a man. And Joseph would be the stepfather. He would be responsible to care for him, to provide for him, to teach him, and he taught him his trade, which was as a carpenter. He needed to be a faithful man, a trustworthy man. And I believe that's why Joseph was chosen, because of the kind of man he was. I, I saw, read this little story about trustworthiness that has nothing to do with Christmas, but I thought it was kind of cute. An elderly cu couple took their six-year-old grandson to church on Sunday morning. The grandmother sang in the choir, so she told the boy that he would be sitting with his grandfather in church. She took the boy aside, gave him a dollar, and told him to poke his grandfather now and then to keep him awake during the sermon. Grandpa slept through the entire sermon. And after church, Grandma asked the boy why he hadn't followed her instructions. The boy replied, You gave me a dollar to keep him awake. He gave me two dollars to let him sleep. <laughs> so you can't always uh, trust people. You know, they may not follow through if somebody will pay them a little more. But was Joseph a trustworthy man? He was. Now, I, there are several details here that we need to notice. First of all, it says here, and in the New King James, it uses the word betrothed. In other translations, the word espoused. He was betrothed to Mary. Now, what you need to understand, how a Jewish wedding happened, and I kind of mentioned this before. After the arrangement was made between the parents to agree to the wedding, 
And by the way, in that agreement, there had to be the paying of a, what's the word in English? Dowry. Dote in Spanish. The paying of a, of a dowry. And so all of these arrangements would be made. When that was all settled, the man would go back to his parents' home, and it was often true that they would build on an additional set of rooms to their own, his own father's house, and that new set of rooms would be for he and his family. Sometimes it was in another place close by, but often it was connected right to the home of the parents. He would spend the entire year preparing, and he would not see her during that year, but they were considered legally married during that time. And if one of the two was unfaithful during that time, the penalty for that was death. Or, as we see in Joseph's time, by that time, he offered her a letter of divorce and put her away privately because he didn't want her to die. But you also need to understand that the only thing that could stop that marriage from carrying forward after that year was a divorce, a literal divorce taking place during that one year period. And so he decided when he found out that Mary was expecting to put her away privately to give her this letter of divorce so that she wouldn't die, but he also didn't feel like he should marry her because from his perspective, she'd been unfaithful. I mean, humanly speaking, she would have had to be unfaithful to be expecting. She had to have been with somebody. And he said, I know it wasn't me. So it has to be somebody else. So he's quietly going to put her away. So there are several things I want you to notice with that background. First of all, the Bible says that Joseph, verse 19, was her husband. So it shows you that from their perspective, even during this year, they've not consummated the relationship as husband and wife, but they are still considered husband and wife during this year. So that's an important point. Secondly, Joseph, her husband, being a just man. What does that mean? How many think Joseph was absolutely perfect, never sinned a day in his life? No, we don't believe that. We know he was a human being. But what does it mean that he was just? The word comes from a root word which means righteous. The idea here is that Joseph was a man of integrity. Joseph was a man of his word. When he said something, he was a man who could be trusted to carry out his word. He was a man who sought to live a righteous life before God and before men. So what we learn of Joseph is that in his community, he had a good testimony. I want to ask you something. Do you think we ought to have a good testimony in our community? Do you think when people see us, let us say, well, he or she's not perfect, but I want to tell you, if I ever saw a Christian, it definitely would be him. It definitely would be her. That's the way people ought to talk about us. They ought to look at us and say, I know he or she is, a, they profess to be a Christian, but I see evidence by how they live their life, by how they talk, by what they do. I see they're believers. And Joseph was this kind of a man of integrity, a just man. Secondly, Joseph was an honorable man in his relationship with Mary. Now, how do we know that? First of all, Joseph respected the engagement period. It says that they did not come together until the after, in fact, after the birth of Jesus. Which means he was faithful to remain pure with Mary during the entire engagement period 
And after they were legally married, until after the birth of Jesus, they never had any kind of physical relationship until after the birth of Jesus. We're going to see this at the end of the chapter in just a moment. Now notice here, he's honorable in that he and she remained pure during the period of the engagement. May I just suggest to you that while our system is different, and in what we call an engagement today, people are not legally married, but I want to tell you something, folks. Christians should remain pure during their engagement. A Christian young man should come into marriage as a virgin. A young woman should come into marriage as a virgin. This is God's plan. This is what he expects of us. That we will not have been fooling around ahead of time. And how many young men and how many young women in our age today have been with several other men or several other women according to their sex and they have been with several people so when they come to marry this person they're experienced. I want to tell you something folks. God doesn't want you to be experienced when you get married. You want to know why? He wants the discovery of this new part of your life to be brand new for both of you. And Joseph and Mary were faithful. And I believe a lot of the reason that was true was because Joseph was an honorable man. And he respected Mary. Listen to me, young men. You do not respect your girlfriend if you pressure her to have sex with you. You do not honor her. You do not respect her. Because if you did, you would want her as a Christian young woman to remain pure until the moment of your marriage. And so I encourage you to think about that. Joseph was just, he was honorable. Also, with regard to Mary, when he found out that she was expecting, he could have immediately called a crowd and stoned Mary to death. Could have done it. The law permitted this. But you know what? He stopped and he thought about it. And I believe, and it doesn't say it here, but I think he was saying, I love Mary too much to have her put to death. My heart is broken. I feel betrayed. But I love her. And so I'm going to put her away quietly and not demand her death. Again, I want to suggest to you that he was honorable in his love for Mary and his willingness not to have her put to death. And then finally... We know from this passage that at a given point, an angel came to him, the angel of the Lord, it says, and said, don't be afraid to take Mary's wife and explain, look, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is, she was not unfaithful to you. She was not with another human man. This is God's doing. And it says that Joseph immediately believed what was said, and he took Mary as his wife. Now think about the implications of that. He's going to be looked at in a certain way by the other men in his community. He's going to be looked down upon, disrespected. Why? Because he took a woman who was pregnant by another man through unfaithfulness. That was what the community thought. And he is in effect saying, I love her. I'm going to obey God because I love God. And even if everyone disrespects me and looks down upon me, I'm going to do it out of obedience to Almighty God and because I love Mary. Sounds like a pretty neat guy to me. 
in his willingness to do this. And then lastly, Joseph was the kind of man God could trust to raise his son, Jesus. To bring him up, to care for him. And, and we, they find out almost immediately after the birth that Jesus is, is in danger. And he has to escape with his wife and the baby and they go off to Egypt and so on. They do this and he's willing to undertake all of that responsibility. Folks, it wasn't like jumping in your car and taking a drive. This would be a very difficult process. And as they're traveling on their own, he's got to figure out every day how to come up with food for he and her and take care of them and protect them for potential ban uh, bandits along the way and all kinds of issues. But he just embraces it. And God knew that he was the kind of man, not only who would begin well, he would follow through all the way to the end. What is very interesting to me is that when Jesus comes on the scene in his public ministry, Joseph is not around. The question is why? Where is he? And the Bible does not tell us. But Joseph, it's believed, probably had passed away in the process, had died, so that when Jesus began his public ministry, Joseph was gone. And maybe the reason for that is, even though sometimes they referred to Joseph as the father of Jesus, there was no father following him around, right? The only father Jesus would talk about and refer to in his public ministry was who? His father in heaven. And never to a human father. Even though I'm sure he deeply loved and respected Joseph. But Joseph was gone. And maybe because of Jesus' ministry as Messiah. And coming king. It was important for Joseph to be off the scene by that point. And when Jesus is dying on the cross. What does he do? He takes his mother. And commits her to the care of the apostle John. Because Joseph wasn't around to care for her. And Jesus. Half brothers and half sisters were unbelieving at this point. They didn't believe in Jesus. So he committed his mother to the care of one of the apostles, the apostle John, so that he might take care of her. And the only time we hear anything about Mary after this is in Acts chapter 1, when the people were gathered in the, the upper room to pray. Mary was mentioned there. And after that, we never see her again in the New Testament. I just think it's interesting of how God dealt with his parents in the sense in which the focus came upon Jesus himself as opposed to the focus being upon them. Now notice as we come to the end of the chapter, of Matthew chapter 1, it says in verse 24, And Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till... That's a very important word. Until... She had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So they had no physical relationship until after the birth of Jesus. Why was this important? To be able to prove that Joseph had nothing to do with the conception. After that, and later on in the Gospels, some of the half-brothers are named by name of Jesus, and it refers to sisters that he had without giving the names of the sisters. So we know that Mary and Joseph, after Jesus' birth, had other children. But before that, Joseph did not get involved with her physically until after the birth of Jesus. So, what kind of man was he? Trustworthy. Brethren, that's the kind of person we need to be. We need to be people that when God 
asks us to do something, even when it's hard, he knows we will not only accept to do it, we will actually follow through and do it. Those are the kind of people that God uses. Do you know what? He says, um, Paul, writing to Timothy, he said, Timothy, you need to find men whom you can prepare to teach others. But what kind of men did he have to choose? Men who are faithful. Folks, listen. One of the most important things that God requires of you and me is that we be faithful. He doesn't say your faith has to be as big as the mountains. In fact, he says your faith can be as small as the mustard seed. But he said you need to be what? Faithful. You need to be faithful. And one day he will say to his faithful ones, well done thou good and faithful servant. We need to be faithful and trustworthy like Joseph. The next question, why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? Now the scripture gives an immediate reason. It's because that was the city of David. Joseph was a part of David's family. And so when they had this tax, this decree that went out by Caesar Augustus that all should be registered, they had to go back to the city of the, 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 the ancestors, the founders that were considered the founders of their family. Joseph was a part of the family of David, so they had to go back to Bethlehem because that's where David was from. So we know in terms of the practical reason why they had to go back there. Secondly, I want you to note that the reason they went back to Bethlehem was because that had been prophesied specifically in the Old Testament. And if Jesus had not been born there, that wouldn't have been fulfilled and it would have been evidence he wasn't the right one. But here's the problem. There are two Bethlehems. How many knew that? I never knew that till this last week. There were two Bethlehems. There was a Bethlehem in the north in Galilee and there was a Bethlehem in the south in Judah. Now listen to the prophecy of the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah. So it identifies which of the two Bethlehems. It was the one in Judah that was a part. Remember that Judah was a part of was the southern kingdom. When the, the kingdom split, the northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And so this Bethlehem was in that southern kingdom, which was two and a half tribes of, of Israel. And it was in Judah. So he says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. I want to suggest that there's one other final reason why he may have chosen Bethlehem. In the Bible, names have specific meaning. And they are often very significant to the future of the individual or to the place that receives that name. Interestingly enough, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. God had his son born in Bethlehem because he is described in the New Testament as what? The bread of life. And so he may have chosen Bethlehem in part because... The bread of life would be born in the house of bread. 
kind of makes sense. So there's another possibility. So why Bethlehem? David's family was from there. Old Testament prophecy. And maybe because of the meaning of the name, house of bread. Question number five. Why was Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes? Now he had to be wrapped in something, right? He wasn't going to be naked all his life. So they were going to cover him up. But why did they use swaddling clothes? Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Start back in verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there are a lot of details in that little statement. But what I want you to know is that after he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, swaddling cloths were long strips of linen cloth that were then wrapped around the baby. And they would wrap them in right in tight, just like you see today when you go into the hospital. You know how they've got them wrapped right up tight and usually their hands are under. And it seems like by being in that kind of closed-in position, they kind of feel like they did when they were in the womb, right? Closed, coming right in, and they tend to be calmer and so on. Well, they would take these swaddling cloths, these long cloths, and they would wrap them around the baby and kind of seal the little baby in, not just to keep them warm, but it seems like part of that was to keep them quiet. I noticed when uh, we were singing the, the uh, Christmas hymn, it says that Jesus, no crying he makes. How many of you think maybe Jesus cried once or twice when he was a baby? You know, that sounds great for the hymn, but I think he was just like any other baby. We know later he got hungry, like people do, and he got tired, like people do. I have a feeling when his pañales, his diapers were wet, he probably did a little crying, and when he was hungry, he was just a normal baby in that sense, right? So they wrapped him in these swaddling clothes. What is very interesting, however is that the exact same kind of cloths you'd use to wrap a newborn baby were the same linen cloths that they wrapped somebody's body in when they died. And when Jesus was buried, it says in Mark 15, 46, and he, referring to Joseph of Arimathea, and he brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen. So it's going around and around. These long strips of linen were wrapped around him. And it says, and they laid him in the sepulcher. So why swaddling clothes? Maybe it was more than just to keep Jesus warm. Maybe it was to remind us from the very beginning that Jesus wasn't born to live. Jesus was born to die. He began his life wrapped in linen cloths, he would end his life wrapped in linen cloths. And you remember when they came and they found the body was gone, that all those linen cloths had been folded and everything was all in its place right there. And they had a, a, a small piece that went over the face and that had been folded and placed on top. And so it was a reminder that the dead was no longer dead. He's now what? He's now living because those cloths have come off the body. He was alive. Now, if we go back to Luke 2, 
it says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Someone has suggested that on the basis of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. When we think about Christmas time, we think about gifts, don't we? Well, Jesus was wrapped, like you wrap up your presents. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, which spoke not only of his being born, but of the fact that he would die, that Jesus was wrapped as a gift from God to the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he what? He gave his only begotten son. So, God wrapped his son in death cloths to be the first Christmas present. His love gift to you and to me. I have four more minutes and I have one more question. Why the shepherds? Why the shepherds? Look with me in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. Luke 2, 8 to 12. Now they were in the same country, shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign of you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now when you think about making the announcement of the birth of a king, where might we be apt to make that announcement? Some have suggested that it would have been appropriate to go to the mayor of Bethlehem and say, hey, I want you to know there's a king being born today. Maybe they should have gone to the city council. They would be men at the gates of that town that were responsible for the affairs of that town. And when you came in, usually you had to deal with them and, and, and so on. Well, one would think they maybe would have come to those leaders and said, you know, a, a king has been born here today. Or they might have gone to the priests who were living in that small community. You'll know, not all the priests were in Jerusalem. Every city, every major place had priests that were doing the work in synagogues or in doing teaching and so on. So why didn't they go to the priests? Why was the news brought to the shepherds? Shepherds were considered second-class citizens. And I might say third-class or fourth-class or fifth-class. They were way down there. Why? Well, there were several reasons. Shepherds didn't smell very good. It says they lived out in the field and they stayed with their sheep. That suggests perhaps they didn't get a bath very often. So they probably didn't smell very good. They certainly didn't dress very well. They were very, very poor. I found this other very cute story. After church one Sunday, a little boy asked his mother, is it really true that the shepherds have dirty socks? Why in the world would you say anything like that? His mother asked. The little boy replied, because in church we always sing, while shepherds washed their socks by night. <laughs> well, I guess he missed some of the words there. 
But they were just simple men. They were not well-educated. And in fact, many people became shepherds who basically couldn't do anything else. They just didn't have many options and said, become a shepherd. Why then come to them? I think that one of the reasons is found in verse 8. They not only lived out in the fields, but it says, keeping watch over their flock by night. When Jesus was being born, they were awake. Where was the rest, what was the rest of the city doing? They were asleep. And they came to these shepherds because they were awake. Those who were asleep completely missed the birth of Jesus. And it wasn't until later on the shepherds went throughout the town and told everybody, but no one would have known had it not been for the shepherds first hearing, being awake to receive it. Folks, listen, the spiritually asleep will miss out not only on the blessings that Christ offers now, but they will not be ready when he comes again the second time. The Bible tells us that we need to awake out of sleep. Unbelievers need to awake out of the sleep of their unbelief and trust in Christ. But we too need to awake out of our sleep as believers. Yes, we may be saved, but it doesn't mean that our focus is upon Jesus. That we're living every day as though he were alive and well and a part of our personal lives. These men were lowly, these men were poor, these men were humble, but they were ready. They were awake. If salvation could be bought with money, only the rich would be saved. If salvation could be achieved by morality, only the good would be saved. If salvation could be produced by fame, only the famous would be saved. If salvation could be secured by religion, only the religious would be saved. But God's call is like that he made to the shepherds. He calls those who are humble and awake. To those who are humble and are ready. So the question becomes this. Have you ever trusted in the Christ of Christmas? He came to die. He came to be our Savior, Christ the Lord. Yes, he came to be the Messiah of the Jews and set up the kingdom. We know he was rejected. The doors open to the Gentiles and we can be saved. Praise God, that's true. But listen, he came to be Savior. And if you don't know him today as your savior, you need to come to know him because he's the only hope for you. This church can't do anything for you in regard to your salvation. We can't. Churches don't save people. Only Jesus Christ saves people. And you and I need to be like these shepherds who were awake and ready to hear the message of God. Listen, if your ears are open to God today, he is saying to you, you need to be saved. You need to trust in my son. Acknowledge your sinful condition and turn from your sin to follow Jesus. That's repentance. And we follow Jesus not just in keeping the Ten Commandments or the morals and so on. What we want is Jesus Christ to be reproduced in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So it isn't just, I pray today, and then when I die 50 years from now, I go to heaven. It's I receive Christ. I put my trust in him as my savior today, and I begin a brand new life of following Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about, folks. Don't get caught up just in the accoutrements of Christmas. The partying, the gifts, the Christmas tree. All those things are okay in their proper place. But folks, I want to tell you, Christmas needs to be about Jesus. Will he be a part of your celebration on Christmas Day? You know, many of us get together in our families, and I, I don't know what I'll be able to do this year. Most of my family are either not saved that I will be getting together with or are people who are not at all even trying. They profess to be saved but aren't even trying to walk with God. They don't get excited when I say, can I read the Christmas story? And at the very best, they put up with it. But I want to tell you something, folks. Listen, I want Jesus to be a part of my Christmas day. I don't want just to be having fun and food and fellowship. I want to have some worship of the Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. Why all these things? Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we've had to study together today. We pray that you'll bless the word to our lives. We thank you for Joseph because he was trustworthy. We thank you, thank you for Mary because she was believing and she was willing to do anything that you asked her to do, even at great cost. We thank you, Lord, that the shepherds were awake and they were ready to hear the message of hope that would come from the angel of the Lord about a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We thank you for all of these things that we've talked about today, that he was wrapped in swaddling cloths as a baby, but it reminded us that one day he would die for us as well. All of these things are wonderful. Help us on Christmas Day, Lord, to make sure that Christ is a part of our focus, not just one another. Thank you, Lord, for what you'll do. Bless us in the coming week. And I pray, Father, that we will seek to bring Christmas into the lives of others by always pointing folks to Jesus. We'll be careful to praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope it's been challenging and exuberating and uplifting in your life as it has mine. We hope it helps you walk closer with God and understand Him better and the truth He's laid out for us in His Word. If you've really enjoyed this sermon or it's had a great impact upon your life, leave us an email or go to our Facebook page or our website and just leave a comment that we might know exactly how it's impacted you. It's very uplifting for us to see those things, for it helps us to push forward to continue doing these. Well, that's all I got for time. Until next week, God bless.